We're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, so let me encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. At Trinity, we're committed to what's known as Lectio Continua Expository Preaching. Uh, That's just a fancy way of saying that we are committed to preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, explaining the meaning of the text and applying it to the hearts and minds of God's people. Now, there are a lot of reasons we're committed to this kind of preaching, but one reason is that it helps us better know God's Word. I hope we will all come away from this study in 1 Corinthians with a deeper understanding of the purpose and the message and the issues found in this letter. So let's recall Paul's argument so far. Remember, he's been dealing with the uh, problems in Corinth, and the first problem that he has been addressing is the problem of division. Christians in Corinth were dividing over their favorite preachers and church leaders. Some were saying, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, and others I follow Cephas. But they were all boasting in men. Underlying this party spirit was the sin of pride. And Paul has been addressing both the underlying sin of pride and the presenting problem of division. Uh, Since the second half of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, Paul discussed the apparently foolish message entrusted to the church, the message of Christ crucified and the foolish members by the world's standards who embrace that message, and then the seemingly foolish messengers who are called to preach that message. And so the logic is, who can boast in men? Who can congratulate themselves for their worldly sophistication when the message seems like utter nonsense by the world's standards? The the members are considered ignoble nobodies, that's what Paul calls them, and when the ministers who preach are all fools. See, the salvation of anyone according to this setup, which is God's way, must clearly and only be the work of a sovereign God and not the product of a particular preacher or the wisdom of man. And then in chapter Six, uh, chapter 2, verse 6 and following, Paul continues to treat the underlying problem of pride by showing that the true wisdom of God, the message about Jesus contained in the scriptures, is unintelligible to the natural person. It has been made known, he tells us in verses 6 through 10, to the apostles, that is, revelation, And in verses 11 through 13, the apostles were given the words by which to communicate the message to us in our scriptures. That's inspiration. And then in verses 14 through 16, we learn that unless and until the Holy Spirit enables people to understand the gospel, they will never accept it as wisdom at all. And that is the need for illumination. So again, Who can boast or congratulate themselves in their own salvation when salvation comes through a seemingly foolish message received by foolish sinners proclaimed by weak and foolish 
ministers. And furthermore, who can boast or congratulate themselves on their own wisdom when salvation comes only by revelation, inspiration, and the illumination of God the Holy Spirit? You see, it is not the product of human intelligence or wisdom. It is the gift of God. And then in chapter 3, we've seen Paul use three metaphors to describe the problems at Corinth and begin to provide something of a treatment plan. Uh, The first metaphor in verses 1 through 4, the Corinthians are like infants in Christ who have failed to grow up the way that they should. They ought to be eating solid food by now, but they're still in need of milk. Spiritual growth was stunted by their prideful divisions and strife. And then in verses 5 through 9, the second metaphor is agricultural. The church is God's field. Gospel ministers are farmhands sowing and watering the seed of the word, but they don't make it grow. And so it's ridiculous to boast in men or yourself as if you could manufacture the growth when it is the Lord alone who gives the growth. And then the third metaphor in chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, the church is like a building under construction. So we must build on the right foundation, Jesus Christ, using the right materials, God's wisdom found in his word, because a day is coming when the works will be tested and unveiled for what sort they are. And now in our passage today, verses 18 through 23, Paul gives a couple of exhortations in light of everything he said. And so as we read, look out for how Paul does more than merely exhort them. He also offers them spiritual resources which will equip them to deal with their sin and to live with a new obedience. Just imagine being given directions, and even being given a car to get there. But then you quickly find out, actually, the car doesn't have an engine in it or any fuel. Of course, you wouldn't get very far, would you? We see, God doesn't do that to his children. He doesn't give directions without providing the resources we need in order to follow those directions. And so as we read verses 18 through 23, look out for the exhortations and the empowering resources, the spiritual resources Paul reminds the Corinthians of, that if we take hold of them, will also enable us more and more to obey. Before we read, please join me in prayer. Lord, we want to build on the right foundation, Jesus Christ using the right materials, your wisdom revealed in your word. And so with your word open before us, as we place ourselves under it, we ask that we would be taught by the Holy Spirit. Give us understanding. Give us humble hearts to receive your word. Transform our minds and change our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Let's hear what God has to say to us today. Let no one deceive himself. 
If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. We'll notice that this passage divides neatly into two sections, each one with three verses and each beginning with an exhortation. The first section begins in verse 18 with the exhortation, let no one deceive himself. The second section begins in verse 21 with the the second exhortation, let no one boast in men. These two exhortations are like headings for the two sections in our text. Paul is being very clear, very deliberate, very straightforward. He's being clear and to the point. He doesn't leave any of us scratching our heads, wondering what he's trying to get at. So here's what he's after. Two things, two dangers to avoid. The danger of self-deception and the danger of boasting in men. So let's start with the first, the danger of self-deception. You know, the danger of self-deception is a major problem. In fact, if you think this isn't something you're susceptible to, well, I've got some bad news for you. You're self-deceived. We all tend to have an estimation of ourselves that is warped or inaccurate or blown way out of proportion. We're quick to assume that our opinions are the standard of wisdom, and anyone who disagrees with us is a fool. So we need to hear this exhortation, like the Corinthians, because we often think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We're often self-deceived. Now, if you take a look at verse 19, you'll see the particular problem for the Corinthians. They loved what Paul calls the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of this age. You'll remember they they prized sophisticated rhetoric and displays of intellectual prowess that characterized the great orators of the day. And so they wanted to blend and hybridize the wisdom of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to be sure, they, they, they wanted the message about Jesus, but they wanted a socially acceptable Jesus. They wanted a Corinthian-style Jesus. They were for the gospel, but they wanted a gospel suited to the expectations of the day. They wanted a gospel that satisfied the tastes and expectations of their culture. And Paul's response to that again and again in this opening section of 1 Corinthians is that when you try to accommodate the message of the cross to the mood of the culture, what you end up inevitably doing is losing the gospel and deceiving yourself. That's what he's saying here. So so don't deceive yourself. You cannot repackage the gospel 
to fit the standards of worldly wisdom. And if you think you can, you're self-deceived. And Paul tells us why you can't do that in verse 19. The wisdom of this world is folly with God. The world's wisdom is in fact foolishness by the standards of the wisdom of God. You see, God doesn't value what the world values. The world's standards for what counts as wisdom are all wrong according to God, who is wisdom itself. And here's the wisdom of God made known. The Lord Jesus Christ nailed to a tree. Sinners saved by a humiliated, crucified, and then raised and glorified Christ. That's the wisdom of God. And the world looks at Christ on the cross and says, you've, you've got to be joking. This is utter foolishness. Couldn't, couldn't an all-wise God have come up with a better plan than this? It's, it's ridiculous. No thanks. We want a message of, of power and political solutions and self-help strategies. We want a message that affirms what we already want and expect to be true. Like that's how the world thinks, and that's how the world responds to the gospel apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And whatever we might think of the wisdom of this age, however compelling it may sound at times, Paul tells us clearly what God thinks of it. It's folly. It's foolishness in his sight. Take a look again at verse 19. Because Paul goes on to quote scripture texts, first from the book of Job, chapter 15, verse 3, and then Psalm 94, verse 11. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. In the end, the the wise are high-minded and crafty, but the Lord overturns their plans. And in the second verse, the so-called wise are arrogant, but the Lord brings their thoughts to nothing. Let's just think about a contemporary example of this. Have have you noticed the the billboard signs all around Johnstown that say, Consent is sexy? It's a piece of worldly sex education advertised all over town. Now, the motive, we should say, the motive is a good one. It's a campaign against sexual assault. And that's certainly something we can get behind and say is that needs to be brought to an end. But from a Christian perspective, one of the things I think we would want to say is it doesn't go far enough because the assumption behind the billboards is that sex between two consenting individuals is a moral good, regardless of whether they are married or not. Right? Sex is only morally bad when one or of one of the two individuals doesn't consent. And so if we can just teach people about the importance of consent, then the world will be a much better place. But you see, the wisdom of the world undergirding this ad campaign is an understanding of sex that is foolish and destructive. It's foolish because it assumes we can engage in sex outside of God's ordained context for intimacy without negative consequences. And it's destructive because people are acting upon this lie 
And it's ruining lives and relationships. And when you look at our society and see how trivialized physical intimacy is and how many people are hurting as a result psychologically, emotionally, and sadly, even physically, because they've lived this lie or they've been the, the subject of the mistreatment of someone else, well, you see what's happening. God is overturning the wisdom of the world and exposing the futility of human reason without reference to God's wisdom. But coming back to the Corinthian context, Paul is saying, when you accommodate the message about Jesus Christ crucified to the preferences of the culture in order to make it acceptable, you haven't found a better way. You are self-deceived. God sees the truth and he catches the wise in their craftiness and he knows the futility of the thoughts of those who think themselves wise. So then what should be done? Well, look at verse 18 again. Here's what we must learn to do. It's hard. It's humbling. You see what Paul challenges us to do in verse 18? If anyone thinks among you thinks he is wise, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So if you want to see God at work in your life, and if we want to see God at work in our church, then you and I must take our place among those who have given up on our attempts at worldly wisdom and instead embrace wholeheartedly the foolishness of the gospel. We must become fools for Christ. We must own what appears to be utter foolishness to the world and take our place in the company of fools who believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified by the ministry of fools who preach it to people who are weak and foolish by worldly standards is God's means of displaying his wisdom and saving power in the world. And so this is the challenge Give up the wisdom of the world and embrace the wisdom of God bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners. Christ crucified, risen, ascended, and returning. That is what it means, dear friends, to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a fool in the eyes of the world. And I wonder, have you, have you come to terms with that? Are you prepared to own that, to look a fool that you might stand where God says true wisdom is found? Trusting in, relying upon, living for the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Do not be self-deceived. Living any other way is folly before God. So that's the first exhortation. Don't be self-deceived. The second exhortation is in verse 21, don't boast in men. Now, this was the particular presenting sin of the Corinthians. They were boasting and dividing over their favorite leaders. This is how their addiction to worldly wisdom expressed itself in their church life. They boasted in men. It's not just that they found particular preachers especially helpful in their Christian lives. 
And it's not just that they affirmed how God used those teachers in their lives to help. Help them grow and mature. <laughs> it's that they were boasting. They were boasting in men. What they said about their leaders was rooted in pride. They were motivated by an attempt to make themselves look good by claiming one or another leader. They were saying, and in fact, I'm, I'm really something for being a part of the Paul party or the Apollos party or the Cephas party. And my guy is better than your guy, and therefore I am wiser than you. You see, it's, it's worldly wisdom at work, and it's all driven by the ugly, ugly sin of pride. But as Paul is addressing the problem, notice how he reminds the Corinthians of two remarkable truths. Truths that are intended to make all boasting completely unnecessary and reveal it for what it really is, altogether ridiculous. And here in these two truths, we find the spiritual resources we need that will help us to obey the exhortations of God to us. So take a look at these with me. First of all, he tells us to remember what we have. And then secondly, to remember whose we are. If you remember what you have and whose you are, everything will change. Pride will die. Boasting will come to an end. Humility will increase and the church will know God's blessing. <coughs> so first of all, remember what we have. Look at the text. Do not boast in men. Okay, well, why not? Here's why. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. The Corinthians are, if you like, a, a bit like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. In this one way, they forgot that everything that belongs to the father is already theirs. Paul's saying, why are you fighting over Paul or Apollos or Cephas when you've already got all three? All things are yours. All those whom Christ sends to preach the word belong to the whole church. Paul's saying, why are you fighting over these men when they have all been sent for your good? But then take a look at the other five things Paul lists that are ours in Christ. Verse 22, the world, life, death, the present, and the future. I think D.A. Carson gets it right when he suggests that these five things represent the fundamental tyrannies of life, the things that enslave us, the things that hold us in bondage outside of Christ. So first, there's the world which tries to squeeze you into its mold. Then there's this life which we cling to as if the Bible had never told us that our lives are but a vapor. Then death, which is a tyranny no one escapes. And that in turn leads to the tyranny of the present as we scurry to achieve and leave our mark before it's too late. And finally, there's the unknown future that haunts us every step of the way and at every turn. You see, these are the tyrannies of life, the things that enslave us outside of Jesus Christ. But Paul is offering an entirely different perspective 
available to us in Jesus Christ. Understand, dear friends, that when you are Christ's, all these things cease to be tyrants holding you in bondage, and they become God's gift to you, to the praise of God and the good of your soul. And when you grasp that, suddenly the world becomes the theater for God's glory, and you begin to rest in the promise that the meek shall inherit the earth. Life ceases to be something you cling to in morbid fear and uncertainty. It is instead an opportunity for joyful service to the Lord as he leads and protects and provides. We're no longer slaves to the fear of death, something we are constantly trying to avoid. Because now, for those who belong to Jesus, death is the the gateway to glory where although we are absent from the body for a time, we shall nevertheless be present with the Lord, which is far, far better. So we can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And when all that really informs how we live then, then the present no longer governs us like a harsh taskmaster. Now we see it as an opportunity for ministry because we cure under the the wise governance of our Heavenly Father who works all things together for the good of those who love Him. And we live with hope because we know the one who knows the future and that all of our days are ordained for us. And they're already written in his book before one ever came to be. And so we face the future without fear, confident that he holds the future in his hands. All things are yours when you get Christ. And so he says, (coughs) remember what you have. You know, John Owen, the great Puritan, I think echoed what Paul knew to be true about Christians when he said that our greatest problem as Christians is that we are prone to forget our privileges. Isn't that something? One of our greatest problems, our greatest problem, in fact, Owen says, as Christians, is that we are prone to forget our privileges so much of our Christian lives would be happier, healthier, better, more joyful, less inclined to sin, if we just better understood that all things are ours when you get Jesus Christ. See, Paul is saying, if you would but see your squabbles in the light of what you have in Jesus, you'd realize how foolish your divisions really are. We're too often like a like a family on a long drive to a great destination like the Grand Canyon, you know, cooped up in a vehicle for too long that's too small for uh, this this long trip, and, and everybody's starting to get on one another's nerves. Starting to, the kids are bickering in the back and arguing, and uh, arguments are intensifying as mom and dad argue about directions and when to stop for a bathroom break. The kids are fighting over who gets the iPad. And things are reaching a fever pitch when all of the sudden they come around the bend and catch a glimpse of the Grand Canyon, the grandeur and glory of the sight. And in the light of the glory of the landscape, 
all of the arguing, all of the bickering, all of the fighting stops. That's really what's going on here. Paul is saying, look at the glory of what you have. Look at the vast landscape of blessing that is yours. And when you begin to take that in and remember what you have in Christ, you will stop this foolish bickering over your favorite leaders. And instead of dividing, you'll be taken up with wonder, love, and praise. So remember what you have, dear brothers and sisters. But then also remember whose you are. Remember who you belong to. Look at verse 23. All things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Not only have all things been given to you in Christ, but you have been given to Christ, and the Christ to whom you have been given is God's Christ. Paul is trying to to shed light on their situation by putting it in its bigger context. He's trying to reframe our thinking so that self no longer fills the horizon. All is yours. You are Christ's and Christ is God's who is over all and all in all. So here's the most basic fact about you if you are a Christian. It's that you belong to Jesus. You are his. You are not your own. You belong to the Lord by virtue of creation, and you belong to the Lord by virtue of redemption. You are his twice over. You belong to Christ who has bought you at a price, and Christ is is God's Christ, so that if we can rephrase something Abraham Kuyper said, Over every square inch of your life, Jesus Christ declares, mine. And viewed from that perspective, boasting dies and humility comes. And so God wants us to understand what we have and whose we are. He wants us to grasp something of the vastness and the glory of what we're given in Christ So that we we do not boast and proclaim our own wisdom. And instead we stand humbled and amazed before God, who is all in all, and who has given us grace upon grace in his Son, Jesus Christ. Instead of being preoccupied with prideful divisions and silly squabbles, Paul calls us to turn our eyes upon Christ and all of the privileges that we have in him. Remember what you have. Don't let self fill the horizon. See beyond your own petty demands and preferences. Behold what is yours in Christ. And then remember whose you are. That you don't belong to you. You belong to Christ. So don't live anymore like you are your own. Don't live as if you were a rule unto yourself. Because you belong to Jesus who shed his blood to make you his. And over all is the lordship of God the Father, to whom belongs all things. And seeing this vast reality, doesn't it make our self-centeredness, our pride, look utterly ridiculous? God has redeemed us and given us all things in his Son, 
We belong to him and are for him. And so may the Lord help us to remember what we have and whose we are, that we may not be self-deceived nor boast in men, but give all the glory to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the greatness of your grace to us in Christ. We confess we barely understand what it means that all things are ours. But we thank you that it's true. What, what a promise. And we confess that we've, we've lived as if we belong to ourselves. But we thank you that it isn't true and that instead we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us. Help us to remember these amazing privileges and learn as we see them to put pride to death, to live humbly before you and with one another. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.